I'm grateful for the opportunity to reflect on scripture and in particular on John's gospel. What better thing is there to do? The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that the sacred scriptures, quote, make known Christ's heart and that, quote, the gospels are the heart of all the scriptures. And I want to add that it's my experience that among the gospels, it is John's where one draws closest to the heart of Jesus. So I chose to focus tonight on John's gospel in an effort to draw closer to the sacred heart. After your Santa Paula year, I knew that I could not ask to teach freshman theology yet again. I had taught it many times over, and it was somebody else's turn. But I was sad to let it go, so I convinced my wife that we should do a Bible in the Year program. So for one year, we sat down every night and read passages of the Bible out loud to each other and worked our way through the whole blessed thing. There's certainly peaks and valleys in that effort. I remember the first eight chapters of Chronicles, for example, took a long time to read. But when we finally got to John, it felt totally different. We paused several times during John and just looked at each other and said, this doesn't sound like anyone else. No one else writes like this. The other gospels are profound, but here I felt as though I was being let in on a secret. It was more intimate. Jesus seemed more real. And I just picked out a couple of examples, uh, more or less at random. So in chapter 13, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Or again in chapter 15, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I could go on. I find it mesmerizing and tremendously personal. Why does Jesus seem more alive in this text? Clement of Alexandria says that the other gospels to de uh, describe the bodily aspects of our Lord's life, while John lays hold of the spirit, the soul in depth. Cornelius Alapide, a great Flemish Jesuit who wrote extensive biblical commentaries in the early 17th century, says something really interesting about John. Quote, John has a style peculiar to himself, entirely different from that of the other evangelists and sacred writers, 
For as an eagle, at one time he raises himself above all. At another time he stoops down to the earth, as it were, for his prey, that with the rusticity of his style he may capture the simple. At one time he is as wise as the cherubim. At another time he burns as do the seraphim. The reason is because John was most like Christ and most dear to him, and he in turn loved Christ supremely. Therefore, at his last supper, he reclined upon his breast. From this source, therefore, he sucked in, as it were, the mind, the wisdom, and the burning love of Christ. Wherefore, when thou readest and hearest John, think that thou readest and hearest Christ. For Christ hath tra transfused his own spirit and his own love into St. John. I thought it's also worth uh, thinking about the fact that uh, St. John was actually present at the, at the crucifixion and lived that experience in a way that the other evangelists didn't. And also that he spent so many years of his life living in close proximity to uh, the Blessed Mother as her son and therefore as formed in some way by her. So I was happy to speak about scripture and even more so to pick out the Gospel of John. And in particular, tonight I want to talk about the episode of the woman caught in adultery at the beginning of chapter 8. And to try to explain it in light of John's unfolding narrative. And I want to say this story is not universally appreciated. For example, early in Tolstoy's classic novel Anna Karenina, Stefan Arkadyevich Oblonsky asks Konstantin Dmitrich Levin, I had to take those names slowly, how one should treat a fallen woman. Levin responds, I have never seen and never will see any lovely fallen creatures. They're all vermin to me. But what about the one in the Gospels, Oblonsky asks. Levin replies, oh, stop it. Christ would never have said those words if he'd known how they would be abused. And St. Augustine, in his short work on adulterous marriages, mentions this episode. He says that some enemies of the true faith, fearful of giving their wives the license to commit sin, expunge from their manuscripts that incident of the Lord showing forgiveness to the woman who committed adultery. As we look at this story, it's worth keeping in mind that it has proven something of a sign of contradiction in more than one historical era. The depths of Christ's mercy here is legitimately shocking. St. Augustine's claim that some have expunged this story from their manuscripts points towards an objection that might be worth considering before we plunge into the story. So some might object that it's wrong-headed to examine this story within the confines of John's Gospel because it's not originally from John's Gospel. And it is true that many modern scholars confidently assert that this is not originally Johannine. If you look in the footnotes of the handout and you have good eyesight, uh, you'll see that some place this text in Luke and some remove it from scripture altogether. Lapide says that it is not found in the Greek fathers, 
And some biblical linguists assert that the language of this passage shows marked differences from John's usual prose. So where does that leave us? These are strong arguments. Don't want to simply ignore them. And I wouldn't know how to begin the linguistic argument, for example. Would it be wrong for me to make an argument about this story based on how it fit into the timeline of the narrative? Was it wrong for you freshmen to read it as part of John's gospel this week? I'm not an expert, so I will grant that this episode might or might not originate with John. Perhaps St. Luke wrote it, as some suggest. It's difficult for the non-expert to judge such a claim. But regardless of whether or not John wrote it, I argue that this story belongs in this gospel. Why do I say that it belongs in John's gospel even if maybe John didn't write it? St. Thomas Aquinas captures a dogma of our faith when he says that, quote, Auctor sacre scripturae est Deus. God is the author of sacred scripture. So even if it happened that St. Luke was the original human author and he intended it to fit into his 21st chapter, as some suggest, it's a separate question to ask where the divine and principal author intended it to be read. To my mind, this is answered satisfactorily by looking to the authoritative declaration of the church regarding the canon of scripture. The Council of Trent, for example, states, if anyone does not accept these books as sacred and canonical in their entirety with all their parts, according to the text usually read in the Catholic Church, and as they are in the ancient Latin Vulgate, let him be anathema. Since, therefore, the Vulgate contains this story in this place, that is chapter 8, in John's Gospel, the believer has legitimate grounds to expect that it will be fruitful to read this story in the context of the whole book. So turning then to our story, just going to read it first. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. 
There are many intriguing things in this passage. Um, first, why does Jesus go to the Mount of Olives when everyone else goes home? Second, why is it important to note that this episode took place in the temple? Third, it says early in the morning. Why is the timing of this event important to mention? How does it fit in with the flow of events around it? Fourth, it says that they acted here to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. What exactly is the nature of the test? What charge or charges do they hope to catch him on? Fifth, where is the man caught in the act of adultery? Surely they couldn't have caught her in the act without at the same time catching him. Indeed, one translation says that she was taken in the very act of adultery. Sixth, why does Jesus bend down and write with his finger on the ground? And what does he write on the ground? Seventh, when they press him, why does he say, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her? And to whom is he referring? Eighth, why do the Pharisees leave one by one, beginning with the eldest? Ninth, how exactly did Jesus escape their clutches? Tenth, why does Jesus decline to condemn her? Is it only because no one else condemned her? Eleventh, what exactly has Jesus done for the woman? Has he merely extricated her from a life-threatening situation? These are some of the questions that strike me as I read this story. In the next hour or so, I will explore this episode, and with the help of the commentaries mentioned earlier, I will propose some thoughts on these questions. And I want to be a little confessional before I begin. I'm not a trained theologian, so I may make many missteps and miss some important connections. I apologize in advance and am eager to be corrected if I go astray. So. I'll look forward to the discussion period. I approach the text not as an expert, but as one who loves to read and ponder scripture. Our approach in freshman theology lies very much at the heart of this project. But I am also open to help where I can get it, so I sought guidance, principally from St. Thomas's Catena Aurea, where he gathers comments from St. Augustine and other church fathers and doctors, from St. Thomas's own commentary on John, and from a great commentary by Cornelius of Lapide. Our approach to scripture in freshman year always proves a wonder-filled experience, but it often leaves us with more questions than answers. I found it delightful to discover the kind of help that's available from those amazing readers of scripture. For example, when it says that they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, I assumed it meant that he was going to pray all night at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Lapide agrees, suggesting that he spent the night praying in, in the garden. But Aquinas and Alcuin assert that he was going to spend the night, as was his custom when he was in Jerusalem, as the guest of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha at their home in Bethany, which was on the Mount of Olives. So these sources disagree. But even though these authorities disagree on this detail, they all agree that the choice of location 
is rich with significance, since the Mount of Olives is the Mount of Anointing and Grace. Aquinas adds that the olive signifies mercy and the medicine of spiritual grace. This certainly helps us to ponder the magnificence of the great mercy displayed in the episode we're considering. Quote, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. What exactly is the nature of the test or trap? And why do they try to trap him in this way at this point in the gospel? And how did they engineer the trap? The nature of the test seems pretty straightforward to me. They intend to present him with a dilemma, a choice, which will catch him up no matter which option he chooses. On the one hand, the words of Leviticus 20 require that this woman must be killed. Quote, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. On the other hand, it is clear from John chapter 18, verse 31, that the Romans have forbidden the Jews to execute anyone. If you recall in this passage, Pilate urges the Pharisees to take Jesus and judge him according to their own laws. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So Jesus is being put on the spot, side with Moses or side with Rome. If he says, do not stone her, he sides with Rome and rejects Moses and thereby loses credibility with the people. If he says, stone her, he sides with Moses and disobeys the Roman law that forbids the Jews to put anyone to death. And if they can get him to disobey the Roman law, they can hand him over to Pilate, problem solved. This is the way the trap looked to me. But Cornelius Alapide reports that St. Augustine saw the trap differently. He summarizes this position, saying that the Pharisees wanted to accuse him as being opposed to the law if he said that she was not to be stoned, but as cruel and harsh if he said otherwise. But they rather supposed he would not order her to be stoned in order to keep up his appearance of gentleness and not to lose the favor of the people. This is very interesting. They judge that he has managed to find favor with the people because he is gentle. In other words, he coddles or flatters the people for the sake of popularity. If he does the just and righteous thing and says, stone her, he will lose the very basis of his popularity and the people can get over their unhealthy obsession with him. If he does the unjust and impious thing and says, spare her, he can be exposed as an enemy of the law. So in this understanding, the two things pitted against each other are the righteousness of the law and the lure of personal popularity with no mention of the threat of Roman punishment. And St. Augustine further suggests that they felt they had grasped the inner man of Christ and could anticipate that he would choose his own popularity rather than justice. Perhaps this says more about them than it does about Christ. Uh, St. Thomas in his commentary seems to think something very similar, but he puts it a little differently. Quote, 
Their question is a trap, for they are saying, in effect, if he decides that she should be let go, he will not be acting according to justice. Yet he cannot condemn her because he came to seek and to save those who are lost. From John 3:17, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is very striking. If the Pharisees understand the trap in this way, that is, if they understand that he came to seek and to save those who are lost, then they have understood something truly profound about Jesus. But if they have this true understanding, their behavior is cast in a much more sinister light. Their guilt in rejecting him is more perverse the more they truly understand him and his mission. Perhaps a better way to think about what St. Thomas says here about the trap is that he is more explaining how the question is in fact a trap, but not necessarily how the Pharisees understood the trap. This fits with what Aquinas says in the next paragraph. Quote, they said this to test him, for they thought that Christ would say that she should be let go so as not to be acting contrary to his gentle manner, and then they would accuse him of acting in violation of the law. In other words, Aquinas seems to recognize that the Pharisees did not, or did not all, conceive of him as having a divine mission, but they were still, in fact, asking him to act against his divine mission. At the same time, their limited conception was that they were asking him to undercut his popularity. If we take it this way, then St. Thomas' account fits perfectly with St. Augustine's, which wouldn't be strange. Aquinas often goes the route of St. Augustine. I'm going to take this a step further and suggest that it doesn't conflict with either of these accounts to suggest that the Pharisees also envisioned being able to turn Jesus into Pilate if he judged that the woman should be stoned. The text itself does say, after all, that they were testing him, quote, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So I'm pleased to learn from these great doctors that the danger on one side of the trap was that he would be untrue to his divine mission if he had the woman stoned, and that the Pharisees anticipated that by this he would undercut his popularity. But I still maintain that this would also give them grounds to bring a charge against him of disobeying the Roman law. And given how mindful they are of the prohibition in chapter 18, it is unlikely that they would be ignorant of it in this context. Next, let us consider the timing and agency of this attempted entrapment. What light can be shed on this passage by thinking about when it happened? And how do we understand the agency of this trap? In other words, how were they able to produce the trap? I want to think about these things together, the timing and the agency. And indeed, the passage is replete with timing language. Night comes, and they go each to their own house, but Jesus to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. Why did they bring her to him now? Did she just so happen at that moment to be caught in the act of adultery? Was it sheer coincidence? Perhaps it is sheer coincidence. But remember, 
The Pharisees are deliberately trying to trap him. Verse 6, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So it's worth examining their motivations here. And to do this, I want to back up a little and look at what went on before the morning of the attempted trap. What happens right before this, and here I'm going to go basically through chapter 7, which you have in your handout, though you need good eyes to see it. What happens right before this is the great week-long celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Begin at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, that is, after his open declaration in chapter 6 of the Eucharist, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, so his brethren said to him, leave here and go to Judea. At first, Jesus declines to go because, quote, his time has not yet fully come. So saying, he remained in Galilee. Verse 9. But after his brethren had gone, he snuck up. He also went up, not publicly, but in private. And what was the situation as he found it? Remember from verse 1 that the Jews sought to kill him. Well, in verse 11, we see that they are still actively looking for him. They have not forgotten their malice. Next, we see that the people are muttering about him. And the word muttering is interesting because um, some are speaking on one side, some are speaking on the other. They're muttering about him because some incline toward him and some against him. And notice here that the people means something different from the Jews. The Jews here seems to refer to the authorities. This is evident at verse 13 where it becomes clear that another reason they are muttering is that they dare not speak openly, quote, for fear of the Jews. So Christ is in their midst but hidden. And meanwhile, he's all that anyone can talk about, but they do it in whispers because they fear the authorities, that is, the Jews. About the middle of the feast, so perhaps day four, he goes up to the temple and teaches openly. And even the Jews are filled with wonder at the way he speaks. Verse 15, the Jews marveled at it, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus speaks openly, and one might say provokingly, to the authorities. He says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He seems almost eager to anger them and bring things to a head. He is clearly saying, I have been sent and am faithful to the one who sent me. I do not seek my own glory and there's no falsehood in me. He's also saying, at least implicitly, you claim to speak for Moses, but you're not faithful to Moses. You seek your own glory and you are full of falsehood. Why then do you seek to kill me? 
Jump to verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? This had to be terribly galling to the authorities. He insults them, and they have no comeback. And by their very silence, they seem to the people to be attesting to his divine mission. And as though this is the last straw, they do attempt to arrest him in verse 30, quote, but no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man had done? People sometimes say very remarkable things. So are we waiting for somebody to do more than Christ has done? That's the Pharisees are losing, and they're losing quite badly. If the people are won over, where will that leave them? But their effort to arrest him fails miserably. So what are they to do? They tried and failed to arrest him themselves, so at verse 32, they decide to bring in the professionals. They send officers to arrest him. Jump to verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed. Notice that he's again speaking very openly. He, quote, stood up and, quote, proclaimed. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And the people respond strongly, though not uniformly, with some saying, this is really the prophet, and others, this is the Christ and others nitpicking that the Christ is not supposed to come from Galilee. Some of the people even, again, wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. For the Pharisees, things are at quite an impasse, and to make matters worse even, the officers sent to arrest Jesus come back empty-handed and even half-converted. Verse 45, the officers then went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, are you led astray, you also? Have any of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who do not know the law are accursed. There's a lot to digest in this passage. It's a dramatic moment. When faced with their own utter impotence and Christ's complete power to move hearts, they are not led to question their own certainty or righteousness. Instead, they express contempt for the crowd and complete confidence in their own authority. The people point to the magnitude and majesty of the signs that Jesus has worked as testimony to his divine mission. What prevents them then from opening their eyes and seeing the divinity standing before them. At least in the context of chapter seven, the only thing that they cling to as evidence that Jesus is not the Christ is that they know that he's from Galilee. And why would this mean that he's not the Messiah? Two points of scripture back them up. First, the prophet Micah says that the Christ will come from Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, 
for from you shall come a ruler who will govern my people Israel. The second comes from Isaiah chapter 53, which says, who shall declare his generation? This text seems to be the basis for the contention of the people that when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from at John chapter seven, verse 27. So this seems like a strong conclusion to rest on a misunderstanding that they could have cleared up easily with a little inquiry. I mean, what do those, those scripture texts supposedly say? No one will know where he comes from, where he's born, and two, we know that he's from Nazareth, and he's supposed to be from Bethlehem, right? So he's called a Nazarene because he was raised in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem because of the census. So both prophecies were fulfilled. They don't know where he was born, but they don't know that they don't know, <laughs> since they mistakenly assume that he was born in Nazareth. It's almost as though their hearts were closed to even considering the possibility that he was who he appeared to the people or some of the people to be. So in short, the reason they could not recognize their God working signs and wonders before them was the hardness of their own hearts. So, clinging to their exalted self-righteousness, watching the people slip from their grasp, foiled at every turn, they leave for the night temporarily beaten. But they're not ready to surrender. Their hearts are much too hard for that. When they return early the next morning, they have figured out a new plan, a plan to trap him into rejecting either Moses or the Roman authorities. But you might say it's one thing to come up with a plan, it's another thing entirely to have the means to enact the plan. This plan required something very specific. It required them to bring to Jesus someone condemned by the Mosaic law to death by stoning. Now there are several categories of grave offenses that would qualify here, but adultery is a top candidate and certainly less terrible to consider than premeditated murder, for example. If they walked away from Christ frustrated at the end of one day, spent some time plotting, how was it that they were able to come up with a woman caught in adultery by early the next morning? It certainly would be quite a coincidence if they decided they needed such a victim and then just happened to stumble upon one. Now, of course, a coincidence is always possible, but by definition, it's not likely. So let's explore the possibility, at least, that it's not a coincidence. If it's not a coincidence, then it seems to me there are two possibilities. The first possibility is that one of their number already knew of somebody habitually or planning to commit adultery that night. This would enable them to lie in wait and catch her in the act. This does not seem like a totally unreasonable possibility. Adultery seems to be like the poor in that it is always among us. It would not be unlikely that one of the Pharisees would be aware of such a situation. But given the Roman prohibition on putting anyone to death, the Pharisees certainly had a reason to turn a blind eye to any cases of adultery that came to their attention. If they acknowledged such a sin, 
Wouldn't the law of Moses require them to stone the guilty parties? In other words, if they were to admit to knowing of such a scandal, they would catch themselves in the very trap they are trying to set for Jesus. This would fit with Christ's accusation that none of you keeps the law. It would also explain the readiness with which they hatched this plot. In other words, they might think of the dilemma readily if they were aware of their own guilt, that is, the guilt of avoiding the dilemma by feigning ignorance. So one possibility is that they were turning a blind eye to adultery that they knew was going on, but suddenly they're going to pay attention to it, focus on it, catch the guilty party, and turn them into Jesus. The second possibility is that when they decided that they needed a woman caught in adultery, they took steps to produce an adulterous woman. For example, by selecting a volunteer to entice a woman to commit adultery. But would a Pharisee really be willing to commit adultery to break the law of Moses in order to entrap Jesus? It's really not that much of a stretch of the imagination, especially when we recall the words of Caiaphas that it is, quote, expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And remember also that when it came down to it, in order to be finally rid of Jesus, these same ones were willing to proclaim publicly, we have no king but Caesar. Think about what a betrayal this is. Remember what the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Listen to the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Or again, think about John chapter 12. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. If they're willing to commit premeditated murder to resist Jesus, why on earth would they balk at something so relatively pleasant as adulterous seduction? Think of the two elders who are willing to use the law of Moses as a means of intimidating Susanna into committing adultery. Thinking of the book of Daniel. Time and again, the people of Israel were plagued by judges and priests willing to use their office to obtain sexual favors. For example, in the book of Samuel, Eli reprimands his sons because they, quote, lay with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. It is entirely thinkable that one of these Pharisees was selected or volunteered to commit adultery with the understanding that he himself would not be dragged out into the open to be accused before Jesus and the crowd. Someone might even suggest another possibility, that namely that the Pharisees would not commit the sexual sin against the law of Moses themselves, but would instead convince a non-Pharisee to undertake the important but sinful task. In either case, it would involve the Pharisees in great hypocrisy. So I consider this account not implausible, and it fits nicely with the glaring question of why the woman alone is presented to Jesus for judgment. They claim that they caught her in the act, but it takes two to tango, so they obviously caught him in the act as well. 
the Douay Reims, for example, says that she was even now taken in adultery. And another text from the Catena Aurea says she was taken in the very act of adultery. So if he was sinning at their behest, or if he was one of them, it would most likely have been with a promise of impunity. It seems clear, at least, that the Pharisees were willing to go to great and sinful lengths to conquer Jesus. So just to summarize a little, in reflecting on the timing of this episode, it seems too good to be true. I mean that they need a woman caught in adultery right away, and they find one right away. Reflecting on the timing of this attempted entrapment suggests that the Pharisees bear some responsibility for the sin, either as agents or as negligent watchmen. So how does Jesus respond to their attempt, and how does he escape their trap? Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is a very intriguing response, consisting as it does in a physical act of communication, that is writing on the ground in the temple and a spoken response. And how, with this response, does he successfully escape their trap? I'm aware of two kinds of interpretations, and both involve turning the tables on them in some way. And perhaps I should add that neither interpretation gives a definitive account of what he was writing on the ground. So the first interpretation. According to this interpretation, he invokes a name that all think must apply to the Pharisees and that the Pharisees would apply to themselves, that is, him who is without sin. He says that the one who matches this description should, quote, be the first to throw a stone at her. Now they are caught in the trap. On the one hand, they can own the name and begin the stoning, in which case they may fall afoul of the Roman authorities. On the other hand, if they do nothing, they are tacitly admitting that they're not without sin. This seems like an especially terrible option for them. Think, for example, about how they replied to the man born blind in John chapter 10, when the newly healed man says that if Jesus were not from God, he could not have healed him, they respond, quote, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Gives you a sense of how they were thinking about themselves. One might suggest that Jesus is also turning the tables on them by using the Mosaic law. They brought her to him, saying that she has been caught in the act of adultery. But in Deuteronomy 17, it's clear that the witnesses must cast the first stone when you're putting somebody to death by stoning. Quote, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So if we are really going to follow the Mosaic law concerning stoning, then you, the witnesses to her sin, must incriminate yourselves with the Romans by publicly beginning her execution. 
If this is correct, it supports the notion that he intends for them and all of the gathered people to understand the him who is without sin as referring to the Pharisees. They're the ones who claim that they caught her. He might also be gently pointing out to them that he knows the law better than they do, since they seem to have forgotten Deuteronomy. And furthermore, it's not clear that they are accurately reporting the text of the Mosaic law. They say, quote, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. But the text of Leviticus 20 actually says, the Lord said to Moses, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So note, it's not so much Moses commanding as the Lord commanding. And secondly, although the Lord is not shy about saying that sinners should be stoned, he says this twice in chapter 20 alone, he does not say that the adulteress should be stoned. He gives a list of serious sexual sins, including adultery, and of these he merely says they shall be put to death. So in the same chapter, he designates certain offenses, those criminals should be stoned, but adultery, he just says, should be put to death. And about one particularly serious sin, having relations with a woman and her mother, the Lord says, it is wickedness, they shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. So it seems like the Lord makes distinctions about how people are to be put to death, and he's not at all clear that the adulteress should be stoned. So they're not correct to say, at least, that the Mosaic Law commands stoning in this case. So on this first account, he has cleverly turned the tables on them, appealing to their own overweening self-righteousness and the letter of the law. This is a supreme gotcha moment. They expect him to say, let the woman go so that he won't lose popularity. But instead, he says, in effect, go ahead and stone her, but only if you're without sin. Now it falls to them to enact the Mosaic condemnation, and they themselves must offend the Romans or abandon publicly the Mosaic law and tacitly admit that they themselves are sinners. Very clever. A second interpretation would be that he is justly admitting that the woman deserves death, but that he invites the Pharisees to reflect on the condition of their own souls to see whether or not they are fit judges. The elder Pharisees, perhaps more self-reflective or perhaps more sinful, realize their unworthiness and slink away, leading the younger to also abandon the project. I have to admit that the second interpretation sounds a little strange to my ears. The Pharisees, bent on killing him, do not seem like a very self-reflective bunch. Do they seem like the sort to be quickly moved to an examination of conscience? Doesn't Christ call them a brood of vipers? Do vipers ever say mea culpa? <laughs> on the face of it, I'm much more inclined to think that their immediate thought on hearing him who is without sin would be, yes, that's me, rather than, Lord, I have sinned. But what gives me pause for thought is that this second opinion seems to be that of the fathers and doctors. St. Augustine, for example, says, they examine themselves, find themselves guilty, and one by one retire. 
St. Thomas says, the Pharisees were violators of the law, so Christ proposes a sentence in accord with justice, saying in effect, let the sinner be punished, but not by sinners. The effect of his justice is their embarrassment. For on hearing this, one after the other departed, the elders first, both because they had been involved in more serious sins, and their conscience gnawed them. Can it really be that the Pharisees understood themselves to be guilty? If St. Thomas and St. Augustine agree on this, I am hesitant to dismiss their suggested reading. Here again, I want to propose that the different accounts are not necessarily in conflict, at least if we let go of looking at the first account as a gotcha moment. Jesus does not seem bent on humiliating them. Notice that after he said it, he bent down again to write on the ground. St. Thomas suggests that one reason he did this was, quote, out of consideration for their embarrassment to give them complete freedom to leave. He wouldn't do this if he wanted to humiliate them and vaunt over them. If we attempt then to put the two accounts together, we would say that he does turn the tables on them and they fall into their own trap. The turnabout stings, but in fact, it's ordered not to their public humiliation, but to their repentance. Often in the Gospels, it seems that Christ is meek with everyone except the Pharisees, as though he came to heal all mankind except the self-righteous. But Jesus said that those who are sick have need of a physician. And who is sick if not the Pharisees? So maybe I have to re-examine all of the episodes where Jesus seems to abuse the Pharisees and consider the possibility that in some way he's trying to reach them and offer them healing. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And again, in chapter 8, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. He doesn't say, as a man disciplines his daughter, which might have a much softer look about it, but as a man disciplines his son. This will sometimes seem much harsher, but it's always intended for good. It's always motivated by deep love. So I have to admit that in the hardness of my own heart, I had not considered that here Jesus was trying to help the Pharisees see and hate their own sin so that he, the physician, could heal them. I had only thought about how his clever turnabout must have stung them. He was winning. But it makes sense to suggest that he did sting them, indeed, but to help them see themselves, even if just a little, and not so that he could say, gotcha. How would the writing on the ground fit in with all of this? And what did he write? This is a great question. In a gospel that deals so much with signification and communication, note that the Son of God is even called a word here, and I, I think you'll look long and hard to find a text that has more 
use of the word testimony and witness. So in a gospel that deals so much in signification and communication, it is striking that this episode tells us that he was communicating in writing, but it doesn't tell us what was written. Many theologians have wondered about this and thrown their hands up in the air. Many suggestions are offered, but as far as I'm aware, they're all, all offered somewhat tentatively. So I offer one idea also with extreme tentativeness. If my suggestion is apt, that the Pharisees themselves were involved in arranging or enacting this particular sin of adultery, then perhaps what he wrote on the ground revealed that he was aware of their treachery. Perhaps it revealed the name of the particular Pharisee who had seduced the woman or arranged for another to do so. This is not out of tune with what Cornelius Alapide says that, quote, he seems to have marked out something to put them to shame or to expose their sin. There are many proposals. For example, St. Jerome says that he wrote the mortal sins of the scribes. St. Ambrose, that he wrote a passage from Jeremiah, O earth, earth, listen, write down this man as sterile. St. Thomas says that that's a possibility, but that a better interpretation is that he wrote the very words he spoke. That is, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. But he says that even this is uncertain. So there's no reason not to entertain my suggestion. That is, that he writes something of their particular sin and arranging for adulterous relations to provide the occasion to trap him. It seems to me very reasonable that he's writing some particular sin on the ground. He has not hesitated to castigate them as a group. Many other passages where he calls them a brood of vipers, for example. But it would be unseemly for him to proclaim the particular sin of an individual. So instead, he writes on the ground so that only those closest to him can see it if they look, and so that it can be easily erased. It is not Christ's way to humiliate the sinner, but to call him to repentance. Thank goodness the church has emulated him in establishing private confession and absolute confidentiality. I don't think those were both always the case. But why do the eldest leave first? Perhaps having more seniority, they are leading the assault and so are placed nearest to Jesus, and they can thus see what he is writing. Perhaps they have more experience and therefore are quicker to recognize defeat and the danger of prolonging the scene. I mean that if he was writing their sin or sins on the ground, they would fear that if they did not retreat immediately, he might proclaim their shame more publicly. And Aquinas and Lapide both suggest that the elders are more deeply steeped in sin. In St. Thomas's words, their conscience gnawed them more. And this too would fit with my suggestion, since if the Pharisees did act so corruptly as to bring about the case of adultery, I have to think it would be one of the more senior Pharisees who would suggest it. Would a younger Pharisee dare to suggest it in front of the senior members? And once the Pharisees have gone, 
we are left with only our Lord and the sinful woman. St. Augustine names the pair mercy and misery. How terrified and ashamed she must have felt. Not only was she in her sinfulness dragged into public view, but she was dragged into the temple itself. She was fully aware that she had transgressed and by any account she was ritually unclean. Add this to her shame before the people then, that she was dragged in her impurity into the house of God. This should give us pause again to reflect on just how hypocritically the Pharisees were behaving in this episode. In the Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul is nearly killed because they thought he had brought a Gentile into the temple. In Exodus chapter 20, God tells Moses that the people should wash their clothes and avoid sexual relations for three days to prepare for his approach. But even still, they're not allowed to touch his holy mountain. In Leviticus 24, when a man has committed blasphemy, the Israelites are instructed to, quote, bring out of the camp him who cursed. In Deuteronomy 17, say to bring forth to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. Deuteronomy 22 says that if there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them. So given this emphasis on removing impurity from the city or camp, it seems a strange move to bring the impurity into the temple itself. But what were they to do? That is where Jesus and the people were and the Pharisees were desperate, so they dragged her into the temple. How callous they were toward the holiness of God's house and also the feelings of this sinful woman. How does Jesus treat her? It's very important that he does not treat her as though she's innocent of the charge. She's guilty, and he is justice itself. Why then does he not condemn her? He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. It sounds as though he's saying that he will not condemn her because the Pharisees have not stayed to condemn her. Can this be right? St. Ambrose suggests that this is in fact correct. He says, see how Jesus moderated his answer so that the Jews could not accuse him for acquitting her. For she is dismissed in as much as no one remained to accuse her. She was not acquitted as innocent. She is free to go because the charges have been dropped not because she has been found not guilty of the charge. But St. Ambrose also says that she leaves without her guilt because he absolved her of her sin. Lapide says, quote, Christ inspired in her secret sorrow for her sins and an act of contrition, and then pardoned her sins. Aquinas agrees, saying he made her inwardly just by outwardly forgiving her. Now the one who came, quote, not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him, wanted to make clear that he hates the sin and not the sinner. So he adds, go and do not sin again. So how to understand this story in summary. At the great feast of tabernacles, Jesus publicly provokes the Pharisees 
They're frustrated that they are unable to lay hands on him while he makes great progress winning over the people. In their desperation, they concoct a trap and do whatever it takes to set the trap in motion. It is likely that this implicates them in serious sin. Blind hypocrites, they drag this miserable and guilty woman into the temple before the crowd and before her creator. They demand that he judge her. They hope to take hold of his judgment and condemn him before either the people of Rome or the Roman, uh, sorry, either the people or the Roman authorities. He replies in justice that they may exact punishment, but only if they are sinless themselves. He helps them by the cleverness of his response, by writing on the ground, and perhaps by the movement of grace to achieve at least a measure of self-awareness and shame. They leave Jesus alone with the woman. As the supreme physician, he heals her sickness and charges her to persevere in the way of light. When I told Ms. Zedlick that I was planning on talking with you about the woman caught in adultery, she responded that I should not neglect that other woman. At first, I was unsure whom she meant to indicate because St. John's Gospel seems built around important women, including Our Lady at the wedding feast of Cana and Martha, who makes such an amazing declaration of faith in chapter 11, and Mary, her sister, who anoints Jesus' feet in chapter 12. But Ms. Zedlick explained that the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4 was too often neglected. And I think she's right about that, so I will close with a brief consideration of a few points of comparison between these two stories. And just a quick reminder, in chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea to Galilee, and they pass by Jacob's well in Samaria. Jesus was weary, so the disciples leave him resting by the well and go to buy food. While they're gone, Jesus surprises a woman by speaking with her and telling her that he is the Messiah. It's remarkable how open he is with her. He also reveals that he knows all about her sinful relations with men. She responds with belief and joy and spreads the good news about him throughout the city. Perhaps it's fruitful to note at least four points of comparison between these two episodes. And first, a little point. The Pharisees are in both stories the occasion for meeting. In chapter 4, it's clear from the first few verses that he is leaving Judea because the Pharisees wished to persecute him. And thus it is the enmity of the Pharisees that leads Jesus to be sitting at Jacob's well when she arrives. And in chapter 8, the woman is brought to Jesus because of the enmity of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are an important part of the unfolding of Jesus' story. Here one might think of St. Augustine's point about the beauty of a poem or painting depending on both light and shadow. Without evil, one can't really tell the story of good. But the Pharisees are also loved by God. He tries to win them in a way that's appropriate to the hardness of their hearts. And he even takes a great champion, St. Paul, from their ranks as though by violence. A second point, 
Both the woman in the temple and the woman at the well are in need of healing from sexual sin. The Samaritan woman, says Jesus, has had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. Third, to the woman of Samaria, Jesus proclaims that he himself is the Messiah and that he comes bearing living water. In chapter 8, he proclaims the same thing to the woman in the temple by his action. He gives the woman trapped in adultery living water to purify her sin. St. Ambrose even says that Jesus, quote, cleanses her as our fountain. Fourth, note that both of these women are anonymous. Is it because these women are unknown and unimportant? It's hard to know. But it's not impossible that they would turn out to be devoted followers of the way. If that is so, then their names, or even family members, might be known personally to some of John's readers. Remember that the Jews have a strong habit of closely monitoring genealogy. Perhaps these women are not named because that they're, the sin that they're guilty of is fraught with shame. Perhaps it's out of delicacy that their names are omitted. John is not hesitant to name other women, such as Martha and Mary, but these two women guilty of sexual sin he does not name. I suspect that these two anonymous women, aided by Jesus' salvific attention, were faithful to his call, and I close tonight by asking them to intercede for all of us and for Thomas Aquinas College. Thank you.